Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was heading to the Telegraph offices to sit down with Isabel Oakeshott, who'd handed over Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApps. In March this year, The Telegraph began publishing its explosive investigation into these messages, the lockdown files. But no leak is ever perfect. When The Telegraph exposed MPs' expenses in 2009, some claims were missing, including some parts of Tony Blair's. And it was the same here. So it's only when you look down the margin of the date that you realise that there is a lot of material that is not there. That's Isabel. It makes no sense for the messages just to to suddenly tail off at the beginning of March 2020 and then pick back up again at the beginning of April. Even though we had 100,000 messages, there was a gap. And that is March. That's Tony Diver, the Telegraph's Whitehall correspondent who joined our team for the investigation. And March really is the crucial month he would want to read because it is where a lot of the key decisions around the first lockdown were taken. We didn't have a complete picture. And if that doesn't raise enough questions... Cabinet Office announced that it's to launch a legal battle with the official COVID inquiry over Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages, diaries and notebooks. It makes you wonder, is there something the government don't want us to see from the early days of the pandemic? Families who lost loved ones during the pandemic claim the government's refusal to hand over all the material the inquiry wants is an insult. Boris Johnson ended up handing those messages over himself but only ones from May 2021. He had to ditch the phone he used before that because it was compromised. Even though the leak didn't include Matt Hancock's one-to-one messages for March, it did include several group chats from that month. It's a good start, but it's not enough. What we need to do is start speaking to people, build a picture of just how prepared or unprepared the government was for the pandemic. You're listening to The Lockdown Files from The Telegraph. Episode 2. The Road to Lockdown. 
The first thing you notice when reading the WhatsApp group chats from March is how much the exchanges feel like the kind of informal back and forths we all have on the app. We wanted to speak to the people in those group chats. We wrote letters, made endless phone calls and sent floods of emails. That's one of my colleagues, Sophie Barnes, reading out an email from a source who had agreed to talk to us. It was a pretty typical response. Some people weren't happy with what we'd published earlier this year. So if we couldn't speak to those who were actually in the group chats, we'd go after the next best thing, the people in the room when key decisions were being made. Brilliant. Very nice to meet you. One of them was Kwasi Kwarteng. Here he is arriving at our studio. Although now known for his rather short tenure as Chancellor last year, back in early 2020, he was a business minister. I went to a couple of those sort of Cobra-style meetings. And I think the overall impression I got was that you know, people didn't know what was going on. I mean, it was an unprecedented uh, set of circumstances. We were looking very much internationally, seeing what other people were doing, which is understandable, because it was a global event. And there was no real playbook. There was no blueprint. We see this play out in the group chats. Here's the investigations team. OK, so we've got this message here from uh, Dominic Cummings on the 1st of March. And he's talking about what he thinks the media is going to expect the government to kind of do in response to COVID. And he's saying the media did not expect a China-style response. But he does say, you know, reasonable people will look to Singapore. And he describes it as a competent English-speaking state that's learned from SARS and is ahead of us in the cycle. And he says, for Q&A, we'll need answers as to why we are doing stuff differently to there if, when we do. And it's scary. I just remember people essentially groping towards an answer. There was no distinct playbook that mm. we could follow. I think people were worried, very worried. And were you worried? I was concerned. I, I just wanted to see how things were going to shape up. I mean, I'm not, I try not to be too panic-driven, try and be cool and analytical, but it was scary. As other countries bring in measures, it crops up time and time again in the group chats. Here's the investigations team again. So here we have this WhatsApp exchange from the 8th of March, and Matt Hancock says, FYI, France has just banned gatherings of over 1,000 and said no kissing or handshakes. I imagine we will get some questions over why that's different to our approach. Yeah, and you've got James Slack, so he's the, the PM's official spokesperson. And he sort of summarised the situation and says in response, you know, we're heading towards general pressure over why our measures are relatively light touch compared to other countries. Light touch, that's an interesting choice of words. You can't help but wonder if a lockdown would have been necessary if things had been handled differently early on. And as cases continued to spread, the shortage of ventilators quickly became front and centre in ministers' minds. There was obviously a huge fear that the hospitals would be overwhelmed. That's Lord Theo Agnew. He was a Treasury minister and had a spot in some of those crucial high-level meetings. He sat down with my colleague Catherine. 
We have one of the lowest percentages of, of ICU beds per population in Europe, and we knew the disease was very, very contagious, and we knew that at a serious level, you were in ICU on a ventilator. And so the fact that we only had you know, 5,000 of those for a population of 60, 70 million people was, was very frightening. We all remember seeing footage of Italian hospitals struggling to cope with a number of COVID patients. This isn't a ward, this is a waiting room. Wherever you go, people are on gurneys, in corridors, in meeting rooms, they're everywhere. And it concentrated the minds of those in government. As doctors in Italy warned they were having to ration ventilators, we realised we might end up facing the same problem here. The NHS were desperately trying to procure them. Lord Agnew again. And they had some that were coming out of a factory in Germany, and they'd been promised for delivery the previous week. Of course, they hadn't arrived. I said, well, we'd better send some trucks out to get them ourselves. You know, get some trucks out on Monday and go and pick the bloody things up. Well, that kind of was just inconceivable. But I said, well, what else are you going to do? You know, I mean, literally, it was, it was like that. So just like Italy... England had a shortage of ventilators. It was clear we couldn't rely on importing them from other countries. And on the 7th of March, a new approach is suggested in the group chat. So at this point on 7th of March, it looks like the officials are getting quite desperate, to be honest, because they're now considering things like how lay people could be trained to treat people with COVID um, if they run out of medics. And um, Dominic Cummings asks, how many ventilators will we be short? And are we putting out bids now to incentivise 24-7 production in the UK? My job spec, which had the slightly farcical title of of efficiency and transformation was irrelevant, really, facing this extraordinary crisis. So I said to Gove, I said, well, I'll take over ventilators because it will need a minister to at least coordinate and make sure that this works because Boris had said he wanted 70,000 built. Well, we only had 5,000 in the NHS. So it gives you an idea of the scale. And none had been built in the UK for years. The job of delivering and manufacturing of the ventilators fell to the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. This department no longer exists as such, but back then it would have been referred to by its acronym. Bayes. And we were spending a lot of time in deep detail on Brexit and Brexit preparations. Mm. For those of you keeping track, that's former Chancellor number two of this episode, Nadim Zahawi. Back in spring 2020, he was a junior minister at Bayes. And then, of course, the virus arrives. The first real experience for me was uh, the ventilator challenge. So uh, Boris and Michael Gove uh, got on a phone call with about 60, 65 industrialists, including James Dyson and you know, the leadership team at Ford Motor Cars and McLaren and Airbus and... Um, Boris did his thing to say, look, your country needs you. Because the real concern, um, and that was sort of my early recollection, was that the NHS would break. Yeah. And if it breaks, clearly many more people will die. Mm. Um, uh, And one of the pinch points was getting people intubated on Mm. ventilators. And I was the junior minister on the call, sort of quietly listening, knowing that the next morning I'm going to have to sort of Make it happen. Play the sweeper role and sort of make (laughs) make the stuff happen in the department. 
I think what frustrates me is the immediate lessons which could have been learned and implemented have not. Lord Agnew again. So the very basic, most simple lesson, the lack of, of an inventory system in the NHS. There is no master system where you can sit and look up how many ventilators in St. Thomas's, how many uh, thousand uh, masks in you know, the general hospital in Sunderland or wherever it might be. And so that's why we had this panic buying of PPE a few months later, because they barely knew how much they had in their own hospital, let alone the system with any view of, of what the landscape of, of stock was. I put Lord Agnew's comments to the Department for Health and Social Care. They responded, saying that there were always lessons to be learned from the pandemic and that they were also committed to learning from the COVID-19 inquiry's findings. They also pointed me towards something called the PPE demand model, which is essentially a body of work looking at how GP surgery and social care gets protective equipment and has put a plan in place so that the system is more flexible. Back to Catherine and Lord Agnew. What other kinds of lack of preparedness are you referring to? Because, you know, we had this flu pandemic plan. I know flu is different to COVID, mm. but what other preparations should they have been making long ahead of the events in Wuhan? Well, I, I remember reading in the, I just arrived at the cabinet office, so it's probably end of Jan, first couple of weeks of February. And I read an article about the medical staff in Wuhan, the doctors having to wear nappies because there was a shortage of hazmat suits. And I did send an email through into the system and said, you know, what is our stock of hazmat suits like? You know, just we can't end up in that position ourselves. Now, to my detriment, I didn't pursue it, which I obviously with hindsight, I wish I had. If I'd caused a row about that a couple of weeks earlier, it may have made a bit of a difference. I don't know. What was really frustrating for some people was that a lot of work had been done on pandemic planning in the past. One of those people is Professor Robert Dingwall, a sociologist and former member of NerveTag. You'd be forgiven for thinking that's a shadowy organisation from a Bond film, but it's actually an acronym for the government's new and emerging respiratory virus threats advisory group. What a mouthful. We'd actually planned in 2005, six, seven for a much worse pandemic than we've actually had. I, I mean, I remember, I mean, our working assumption was the worst case scenario is 650,000 deaths in three months. That's roughly a year's worth of deaths in the UK crammed into a three month period. But there was a problem. When um, the government and some scientists started discussing lockdown and it became clear that that was the the measure that we were going to take. How did you feel about that? I mean, I was always sceptical about it from the start because the pandemic flu planning had been on the assumption that we would do everything to keep society and the economy going. In short, those plans didn't factor in possible lockdowns. Clearly, we have to look at the, the sort of loss of organisational memory in the civil service. We have to look at the hollowing out of local government, the, the loss of emergency planning uh, capacity, the sort of rundown of that, of that civic resilience. I mean, one of the things that I do remember is an early meeting of MIAC where somebody came along from the Department of Health and said, you know, what do we do with the dead bodies? Well, look, you know, this is a Home Office responsibility. The Home Office have done a lot of planning on it. When we were looking at this in the early 2000s, we were looking at documents 
that went back to nuclear warfare contingency planning of the 50s, that went back to mass casualty planning in World War II. And you know, all of that stuff is in the National Archives. Why don't you know about it? When we discussed using the Civil Contingencies Act, the civil servants who came to present the options seem to know so little about what they were supposed to have been working on for several years that it was appalling. For anyone following politics in the UK for the past decade, that voice needs little introduction. But just in case, that is, of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who at the time was... Leader of the House of Commons. And we were discussing whether we use the Civil Contingencies Act, which I was very strongly in favour of, partly because if you've got an act for civil contingencies and you have a pandemic and you don't use it for that, what is the point of the Civil Contingencies Act? What circumstance will you ever use it? But it did expose some real weaknesses in our preparedness, and we'd been telling everybody we were the most prepared country for a pandemic. And we'd been judged by international bodies to be leaders in pandemic planning. Well, that lot of use that did us. Professor Dingwall touched on an area Dominic Cummings brought up in the group messages. I think there's something in the uh, in the leaked Hancock WhatsApp about Dominic Cummings going around saying, you know, how do we decide who gets the last intensive care bed? You know, where's the planning for that? Well, we'd done all that. You know, we had a document which set out the principles for allocating those resources if they came under that sort of pressure. As cases continued to spread throughout March, we can see in the group chats the window of opportunity beginning to close for the government to get a handle on the situation. On the 11th of March, we've got Dominic Cummings, and he messages to say that he's looking for senior people to come forward and speak to the PM and stress, you know, that all sensible people see the trajectory. And he, he talks about, you know, the CDC in America. Is that the Centre for Disease Control? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He says they're saying that the risks of delay are much higher than the risks of going too soon. This message from Dominic Cummings seems panicked. He wants people to stress to Boris the need to act now on social distancing. We wanted to know what other key advisers were saying at the time. Most are unwilling to talk. But one man, who actually joins one of the key chats just before it drops off, does agree to sit down with us. I'm David Halpern. I was and still am the head of the behavioural uh, insights team, known as the Nudge Unit. Two days after coming sent that WhatsApp, David Halpern tells us there was a pivot point, a moment everything changed at one of the SAGE meetings. That's the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. I think there was a particular SAGE meeting in mid-March where I think the penny palpably dropped for a number of people around the table around a number of uncertainties. They included, I think, a lack of confidence about what that famous line was on the graph around which you were trying to suppress the virus down below. This line showed the NHS capacity for dealing with really sick COVID patients. If this was wrong, we'd need to do even more to stop hospitals from falling over. I did scribble in my note in that particular meeting that, um, you know, we're not ready because it felt like they were the realisation of some of those issues. And a colleague put a line through, we're not ready and put something much more blunt. Um, and that sort of crystallised, I think, one of those pivot points. Halpin's being polite here. Let's just say the words written by his colleague, they're not safe for work. What makes this all the more troubling is that we know that there were discussions in government about limiting care if the NHS were to be overwhelmed. Here's the team. So on the 9th of March, there's this message from Dominic Cummings, which 
almost seems to be like a million dollar question really where he says who is in charge of policy like if NHS overwhelmed we will prioritise for ICU 40 year old mums with small kids over 80 year olds etc so what's interesting about that is I think the government have always denied they enacted that policy to, so to read him saying it makes you think well at the very least they discussed it and it links too to that you know that famous whiteboard that Dominic Cummings tweeted out, you know, he took that photo on the 13th of March. Um, basically, you know, you can see the government's sort of sketching out their plan and Cummings' narrative is they realised plan A would break the NHS, it would lead to questions like, who do we not save? And that was that realisation, dawning realisation of, of what would actually happen for everyday citizens. That's what led to the shift to plan B, which was, you know, lockdown, what we all lived through. This isn't the only denial the government issued. You may remember stories at the time about herd immunity, something the government said was never part of the plan. But Halpin describes a shift that comes halfway through the month. I think it's fair to say that in the UK until about mid-March, the presumption was, you know, you flip from contained to unstoppable wave. Unstoppable wave. Let's unpack that for a moment. Or maybe Lord Agnew can unpack that for us. I mean, of course, there were discussions about about letting it rip. Of course, you know, you had to have those discussions. Of course, you did. But but I think the the general view was that when one realised how contagious it was, then one the, 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 we had to restrict human contact. Because we've wondered. So we we had all of these WhatsApps, um, but we didn't have WhatsApps from March 2020, other right. than in certain like a few certain groups. I see. Do you know what they might have contained? What might what kinds of discussions were happening in March that might have? No, I mean I wasn't in the inner inner circle. I mean they may have been conversations between Prime Minister Hancock and maybe Cummings and one or two others. And I, you know, I wasn't in that inner circle. But I, I think I would have to defend anyone for having broad discussions about what the possibilities were. And yet herd immunity does show up in an interview Halpin gave to the BBC on the 11th of March, where he said... There's going to be a point, assuming the epidemic flows and grows as we think it probably will do, um, where you want to cocoon, you want to protect those at-risk groups um, so that they basically don't catch the disease. And by the time they you know, come out of their cocooning, um, herd immunity has been achieved in the rest of the population. But when we speak to him now, Halpin is clear he was against the fatalistic idea of an unstoppable wave. In fact, the nudge unit had been keen to take a different approach from the start. Halpin's team is spread across the globe. They saw that some other countries seemed to be controlling the virus using digital tracking, technology British scientists were yet to embrace. We had these incredibly sophisticated models. Many of them were rooted, of course, correctly on historic epidemics. But, you know, if you go back to 1918-19 or even the 1950s or even, frankly, a decade ago, you wouldn't have had the South Korean option to work out from your phone where you'd been. You know, you wouldn't have some of these other options. It's a new sort of technology or capability that you might be able to deploy, which is beyond the normal toolkit that would have been seen historically. We may never know what the government's plans were in those early days. It's possible that will come out during the ongoing COVID inquiry. But as March wore on, the country drew closer and closer to the 23rd of March. Lockdown. I never forget a meeting in the cabinet room with 
Boris Johnson. There were about 15 of us there. And, and he said, I'm being asked to remove more liberties from the British people than were removed during the Second World War. He said, I, no, to not be able to go to the pub or, or to, to go out of your own house. Now, there was an enormous mental challenge to get one's head around this, but I'll never forget that meeting with him, with Boris in the cabinet room. I don't have to tell you what happened next. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Everything we've explored in this episode has been about the decisions which were taken during the early days of the pandemic. However you feel about the way it was handled, there's no doubt that the government, like the rest of us, was caught off guard. Maybe that was a mistake in itself, not to be better prepared. But there was one sector which seems to have suffered disproportionately. We can't treat people this way. Do you think he told the truth about what was happening in care homes? Within two or three weeks, 32 people died. Truth is a very difficult concept to define. That's coming up in the next episode of The Lockdown Files. I'm Claire Newell, and this is The Lockdown Files podcast. If you like the series, please leave a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. Please consider taking out a Telegraph subscription. We couldn't make this show without our subscribers. Listeners to this podcast can get exclusive sign-up deals at telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget that you can find exclusive details from the series at telegraph.co.uk forward slash news forward slash lockdown hyphen files. And if you have any information to share, please email us on lockdownfiles at telegraph.co.uk. This episode was written by me and Jack Boswell, who was also the producer. The series producer is Adelaide Pogemont-Ponte, with Janet Eastham as a co-producer. The investigations team behind it are Catherine Rushton, Sophie Barnes and Janet. The other reporters who worked on the lockdown files are Robert Mendick, Hayley Dixon, Tony Diver and Jack Leather. Sound design and mixing by Jack Boswell. The executive producer is Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.